You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Understanding Sin and Evil. I'm Miriam Brand. Unfortunately, Melissa will not be able to be with us today, but I'll be sure to fill her in before our next episode. Uh, Today, we're going to continue talking about the evil inclination in Second Temple literature, but we're going to start focusing on prayer. And I've mentioned this before, as we discuss the evil inclination, how prayer tends to put it in kind of a deterministic context. In other words, because when one prays, one asks God for help, a lot of times prayer puts the evil inclination into a context of, I can't help my evil inclination, God, I need your help. Now, we've discussed prayer before, notably, for example, in episode seven, when we talked about where the watcher's descendants show up in Second Temple prayer. But today we're going to be talking more about the evil inclination. Now, with this Our discussion of the evil inclination in prayer is going to continue next episode because on the one hand, I want to talk about prayer, about general Second Temple prayer, prayer that does not seem to be specific to the Dead Sea community, to the Qumran community. And then in the next episode, I'm going to speak about those prayers that we identify as sectarian, specifically prayers that the Qumran community composed. Now, of course, this is always really difficult because, and this is the difficulty when we talk about prayer from the Second Temple period is that we don't really have many because the only things that we can point to as prayers from the Second Temple period is what were found in scrolls and generally in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then the question becomes, well, if we found these at Qumran, they're in the Dead Sea Scrolls, are they all simply the prayers that are specific to the sect? And the answer is usually not. Usually we do distinguish between prayers that are more general and prayers that seem to have specific sectarian language that was written by the community. Now, one of the questions I'm frequently asked is, but the temple was standing. There was no prayer. Now, clearly that is not true. Obviously, just because the temple is standing does not mean that one does not turn to God in prayer. And in fact, we know that Jews did pray during this period. Were there actual synagogues where one prayed while the temple was standing? That's a different question. Whether there was prayer, there certainly seems to have been prayer. Interestingly, there seems to be a distinction between the prayer houses in the diaspora during the Second Temple period, which in Greek are called proseuchai, prayer houses, right? Places of prayer. And Bate Knesset or synagogue that were in the land of Israel during the Second Temple period, which simply are meeting houses. Bate Knesset, places where people gather together. Synagogue, where people are together. So those places during the Second Temple period, they could have been used for prayer, or they could have been simply used for gatherings, or they could have been used for prayer on special occasions, for example, in the time of, if a fast was declared or something like that. Now, again, the idea of were there actually synagogues standing during the Second Temple period, that's another question, and that is actually a matter of some debate among archaeologists. I'm not going to get into that question now. It doesn't really apply to what we're talking about right now as prayer of the Second Temple period. But what happens when all the prayers that you have that have survived from the Second Temple period have only survived as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, then we have an issue. We have to distinguish between those prayers that we think belong to the sect and those prayers which they seem to have copied from a larger group. Now, the prayers that belong to the sect are usually identified by the sectarian language they use. They use specific words and terms that are specific to the community. And we're going to see that a little bit 
in the next episode when I talk about specific sectarian prayers. In this episode, I'm going to be speaking about general Second Temple prayer. Some of it we know existed outside the sect because we have it in other copies. Other prayers are a guess. We have them and they don't look like they're specifically sectarian. Now, one of the issues that comes up a lot when we talk about prayer, and not just about prayer, but the question of what is sin, and I've discussed this a little bit before in previous episodes. If you ask, I come from the Orthodox Jewish tradition, and if you ask an Orthodox Jew what is sin, I'll say a, an act of disobedience to God. I'm generalizing, obviously, but that's your automatic response. It's a sin is not doing God's commandments or doing something against God's commandments. That is a sin. The idea of a state of sin is not common in Judaism or in Orthodox Judaism. It is, however, common in Christianity, especially if I speak to Christians. They'll start talking about sin as a state of sin, that people are in a state of sin. Now, this isn't completely absent in Jewish tradition, and we're going to see that in these Second Temple prayers, we'll see both types of sin. We'll see this idea of having kind of being in this kind of state of sin because of being human, especially since we're talking about the evil inclination today. And we're specifically choosing prayers that talk about an internal desire for sin. And because those are the prayers we're pointing to, we're going to see some ideas that might be similar to a state of sin. We're actually going to see that idea more, more as we turn to the Dead Sea community and sectarian prayer. But let's begin with some prayers, some prayers that existed outside of the community. And we're going to start with a prayer that uh, we know for certain was not a sectarian prayer. Why? Because it exists both in the Psalm scroll it's among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's also in the Syriac Psalter. In other words, it's in the Book of Psalms as it was maintained in the Syriac Christian canon, the Pshita. So it's the Syriac translation of the Bible. So the question is, so obviously the Syriac translation comes from somewhere. So it's Syriac Psalm 155. It's the, in the Psalm Scrolls, column 24. And in this psalm, the speaker asks for an understanding of God's law and to be rescued from hardship. After he makes these requests, he asks God to eliminate his past sins and to assist him in fighting his inclination to sin. So listen, I'm reading now from line 11, or rather from verse 11. The sins of my youth cast far from me, and may my transgressions not be remembered against me. Purify me, O Lord, from the evil affliction and let it not return again to me. Dry up its roots from me, and let its leaves not flourish within me. Okay, so what's going on? He said, I have sinned in my youth, so cast those far from me. In other words, forgive me for those sins. Don't remember them against me. And remember what I said, that there's kind of sin as act and sin as state. So here we see an idea of both, but really where the state is really, what we could also see is the evil inclination. So forgive me for my past sins, just cast them away. And purify me, O Lord, from the evil affliction, minegara, and let it not return again to me. Dry up its roots from me and let its leaves not flourish within me. And here, what he's describing as the affliction, this idea of kind of an evil inclination that's growing inside me, that has a grip on me from the inside. So what's happening here? The sinner, the rather the petitioner says, I've sinned in the past. I have this evil affliction growing within me. Apparently, he means the evil inclination. I would like God, please save me from both, right? Now, only God can help him. Only God can remove his past sins and also clean him or also free him 
from the evil inclination that's within him. And he's sure that God will listen and grant his petition. He finishes, I cried out, oh Lord, and he answered. So here we have, um, actually, it sounds like a psalm, right? It's not, it's not surprising to see that it's in both the book of Psalms as it, as it exists, the, rather the Psalm scroll that exists in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and also the book of Psalms, the Psalter in the Syriac Bible, that he's crying out both to be freed from past sins and to be freed from his current affliction, which is the evil inclination. He doesn't consider this sinfulness as enough to keep him from praying out to God. On the contrary, this is why he is praying to God. Let's turn now to 4Q Barchinafshi. 4Q Barchinafshi is, from you can tell from 4Q, which is, means 4 is for the fourth cave, Q is for Qumran. It was found in the fourth cave of Qumran, and this is a hymn of thanksgiving praises. And it praises God for his assistance to the needy in general, and specifically to the speaker. And I don't, here I have to say that We've decided that this is non-sectarian. Of course, there are arguments about it, like there is an argument about every single text in the Dead Sea Scrolls practically, but it really seems to be non-sectarian. In other words, it seems to be a prayer that, yes, they prayed at Qumran, but they brought it in from outside, from a wider Jewish group. Let me read to you now from Forky Barchinafshi, but before I do, let me note that the status of this speaker is different from the status of the speaker in Psalm 155. The speaker in Syriac Psalm 155 said, I'm, essentially he said, I'm a sinner. Like he didn't, he said, I have sinned and please remove this evil affliction from me, the, the evil inclination. Now, again, he doesn't say explicitly this is the evil inclination. This is what we can understand he means. The negara, the, the evil affliction. Here, the prayer, the person who's praying in Barkinashi says that there's already been a change. Okay, he says, he's speaking about God. Remember, these are Thanksgiving hymns. He has opened his eyes to the helpless and the cry of the orphans he has heard, namely God has heard, and he has turned his ears to their cry. In the abundance of his mercy, he has been gracious to the needy, and he has opened their eyes to see his ways and their ears to hear his teaching. In other words, God has enabled people to learn what he wants from them, right? And he has circumcised the foreskins of their heart, and he has delivered them on account of his loving kindness, and he set their feet to the way. In the abundance of their distress, he did not abandon them. Okay, so what does it mean that he has circumcised the foreskins of their heart? This is the biblical promise in Deuteronomy 36. And in, as in Deuteronomy 36, in Dvarim, Lamed, Vav, right? God himself has circumcised the hearts of his chosen people. So thanks to God circumcising their hearts, right? He set their feet to the way. What does that mean? He's already prepared. He's already enabled them to follow his commandments. What is the circumcision described in Forky Barkinachi? It's the removal of the foreskin of the heart. In other words, it's a curbing of a desire to sin that's internal and natural to the human being, right? In other words, what does it mean that the heart needs to be circumcised? And, and in specifically, it says he has circumcised the foreskins of their heart. Right, vayimol orlot libam. So he's actually removed something from their heart. What is that heart? What is this internal thing that needs to be removed? That would be the evil inclination. And and here you're seeing also my approach. Right, I've mentioned this before that when I look at texts that somehow talk about an inclination to evil, I'm talking about a human inclination to sin. I'm not talking about the evil inclination as it's defined later in rabbinic literature. And also, I don't confine myself to specifically the words yetzerah, 
right? I don't confine myself to the words, the evil inclination or evil inclination. I look at metaphors and ideas that reflect this general concept of people having an internal inclination to sin that must be removed or curbed in some way. Now, the speaker in Forkiborchina, she continues and he says, you have commanded my heart and my inmost parts you have taught well lest they forget your statutes. On my heart, you have enjoined your law. On my inmost part, you have engraved it. And you have prevailed upon me so that I pursue after your ways. Now, this is a different idea. This is the idea that you've engraved your law on my heart so that I'm able to follow your commandments. This isn't talking about the removal of an inclination. This is talking about a positive act of God making a change within him that will enable him to follow the law. And now we get to a very important passage. I'm skipping around a little bit in Forky Barkinafshi, but now we get to a very important passage that describes a change in the speaker's entire internal landscape. Listen, and you'll understand what I mean in just a second. Okay? It says, The heart of stone you have rebuked out of me, ga'alta me many, and have set a pure heart in its place. The evil inclination, and here we actually see yetzerah, the words yetzerah, the evil inclination you have rebuked out of my inmost parts, and the spirit of holiness you have set in my heart. Lechery of the eyes you have removed from me, and they gazed upon all your ways. The stiffness of neck, stubbornness essentially, stubbornness against God's commandments, the stiffness of neck you have expelled from me, and you have made it into humility. Wrathful anger you have removed from me and have set in me a spirit of long suffering. Haughtiness of heart and arrogance of eyes you have, one assumes, removed from me. A spirit of deceit you have destroyed. So this passage emphasizes how God has completely transformed the speaker's evil nature. The speaker had an evil nature. The speaker or speaker had, an, or rather, the speaker had a tendency to evil. The speaker had an evil inclination, a yetzirah. The person had a lecherous eyes, had a stiff neck. All these things have been changed for kind of the good organs, right? The heart of stone, I'm going to read it again so that you can hear the, the change. The heart of stone you have rebuked out of me and have set a pure heart in its place. The evil inclination you have rebuked out of my inmost parts, and here we're missing something, and the spirit of holiness you have set in my heart. Lechery of the eyes you have removed from me, and they gazed upon all your ways. In other words, as soon as the lechery was removed, the eyes could see what you wanted. The stiffness of neck you have expelled from me, and you have made it into humility. As opposed to having a stiff neck, I have, as it were, you could say maybe perhaps a bowed neck. In other words, you have removed the stiffness of neck, and now I am humble. Wrathful anger you have removed from me and have set in me a spirit of long suffering. Right? Long suffering being the opposite of anger. Highness of heart and arrogance of eyes you have removed from me, a spirit of deceit you have destroyed. So this person, the speaker, has this kind of very pessimistic view of himself, right? And one would assume of humankind, where there are all these kind of parts that are part of being a person, right, and are connected actually to somehow to his physical being, because he's, he's connecting it to his heart, he's connecting it to his eyes, he's connecting it to his neck, right, and all of these have been purified from him by God, okay, so the fact that he can thank God for this, it implies that he has a special relationship with God, okay, but I'll remind you that earlier on, he mentioned, he mentioned that God has listened to the cry of the needy and has circumcised the foreskins of their heart. So it's probable that he simply sees himself as one of the needy who have gone through this change through God's help. Now we need to realize that the removal of sinful traits to be replaced with righteousness is not new 
Right? We see it, we see it in Ezekiel and Yeheskel 11.19 and 36.26, when he speaks of God replacing Israel's heart of stone with one of flesh, which allows the Israelites to follow his will. And that's exactly what we saw here, that you remove the heart of stone and put in me a pure heart. Right? So this idea of kind of switching the heart of making an internal change in people is not new. It's not non-biblical. Right? And in a similar sense, if we look at the Masoretic Book of Psalms, the Book of Psalms that every every Bible has, in Psalm 51, it says, Hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities, fashion a pure heart for me, O God, create in me a steadfast spirit. And in this case, I just like to point out that in that particular verse, it's talking about sins as actions. In other words, forgive me for my actions and now fashion a pure heart for me. But in Barki Nafshi, it focuses, there's this lengthy focus on all the negative qualities that have to be removed before God can grant good qualities. And that kind of shows a pessimistic view of human nature. People, being people, have lecherous eyes, maybe have a heart of stone. And I think that it is correct to say that the the person who's speaking doesn't think that just he is sinful out of all humanity. I think he's talking as a human being. That as a human being, God, thank you for removing all these things from me. But what we see also is that the focus of 4Q Barchinavshi is very different from what we read in Syriac Psalm 155, right? Where the speaker in Psalm 155 talks about his past sins and he takes full responsibility for those sins. And he also says, I have this evil affliction growing inside me, please remove it. Whereas the speaker in 4Q Barchinavshi, he talks completely about divine assistance and intervention that God has already removed these things from me. He doesn't talk about uh, human responsibility so much. He talks about, thank you, God, for removing all these aspects from people, from the needy, from those who are praying to you, one assumes, and instead replacing them with positive traits in an almost physical way. Now, what's interesting is, of course, if we talk about what's closer to, let's say, what we're going to see uh, next in the next episode as a sectarian point of view, Forky Barkinashi is slightly closer to a sectarian point of view, because what we'll see there is that there, there is this idea that I'm already one of the righteous, and what that means is that God has already elevated me, God has removed this evil inclination from me. But that's not necessarily true, even in sectarian prayer. We'll talk about that more as we continue. Now let's turn to another prayer that we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Again, a prayer that's considered non-sectarian, and once again, there are arguments, because there always are, and that's the words of the luminaries. Uh, that's 4Q504 to 506, if you're looking it up. These are communal prayers for the days of the week. And they're all spoken in the plural, and they include praise of God and petitions to God. And here, once again, we find a, um, a request for forgiveness of past sins, not just for the speakers, but for their forefathers as well, and a mention of the speaker's chosen status. And afterwards, the community says, remember, these are communal prayers, so it's, all in the, it's in the plural. It says, they request that God circumcise the foreskin of our heart and strengthen our heart to do and to walk in your ways. So again, we have this request for divine circumcision, right? And to be prepared to walk in your ways like we've seen earlier. And that's the standard, now we're getting used to this, is kind of the standard way, request that God uh, kind of implement an internal change away from having some kind of internal inclination towards sin. Now, another passage then presents the promise of this transformation as the result of the chosen status of Israel. It introduces this transformation 
as, and you remember the wonders that you performed for your name has been called over us. In other words, this is one of the miracles that God does for Israel. The community then presents its request and its expectation of divine assistance. And now I'm reading. And again, there are certain places where we are missing words. So I'll just skip over those parts. With all heart and with all soul, and to plant your Torah in our heart so as not to turn from it, to go right or left. For you will heal us from madness and blindness and confusion of heart. For because of our iniquities, we have been sold. And in our transgressions, something has befallen us. And you will deliver us from sinning against you. Now, what are we talking about here? We're asking God to heal us from madness and blindness and confusion of heart. This madness and blindness and confusion of heart is a misunderstanding of the laws of God and the tendency to sin. That's here that's being presented as madness. Now, the idea that sinning actually results from a defect in understanding, we find that in Jewish wisdom literature, such as the wisdom of Solomon and the parables of Enoch. We also find it in Hellenistic thought. We find it in the Orphic fragments, the golden verses of Pythagoras, the Homeric hymn to Demeter, and very famously, I think, Cleanthes' hymn to Zeus, if you ever want to read that, the idea that why does one sin because of a, because of foolishness, right? And here we have something close to that, except we're going kind of further. We're saying madness and blindness and confusion. And in the words of the luminaries, this madness can be healed by God through the planting of Torah. Again, I'm going to repeat it. To plant your Torah in our heart so as not to turn from it, to go right or left, for you will heal us from madness and blindness and confusion of heart. Now, it's not clear whether the cure comes right after the planting of the Torah. They simply go together. We need you to cure our madness and to plant the Torah in our heart. And once again, we have this idea of an internal change that they're asking from God where there's this madness that we currently have and that we need to be healed by God. Now, and once again, I'll remind you once again, here, once again, we have this idea that the laws of God fight sin, right? Plant your Torah in our heart and also heal this madness. Now, sin here is described as a disease, right? It's madness. That's not the same as it being part of the heart that needs to be circumcised. It's not the same as being an actual organ stiffness of neck. It's very different. It's much more external to the person. And it's a little bit further from the way most Second Temple texts seem to present the evil inclination. In other words, it's much less natural to the human state. As soon as you say this is madness, maybe we can compare it a little bit with evil affliction in Syriac Psalm 155, where it's some kind of disease that may be internal, but it's not really, it's not really a natural state of things, right? And it's interesting because we have this idea in rabbinic literature where it says, well, God created the evil inclination, but God also created the Torah as its cure. And the parable is, of a, it's kind of terrible. His parable is, is of a father who wounds his child and then puts a Band-Aid on. And he says, as long as you have this Band-Aid on, you'll be fine. You can do whatever you want. You can eat what you want and you can do what you want, but you need to keep the Band-Aid on. If you take the Band-Aid off, then the sore is going to fester, right? And that Band-Aid, as it were, is the Torah, right? So that there's a wound, the evil inclination, in this specific rabbinic parable. I want to make, make it clear that as with all rabbinic literature, you can find a million different approaches to something. This is one specific parable in which the evil inclination is a wound that one bears and the Torah serves as the bandage 
And that's very similar to what we see here as madness, or let's say the evil affliction of Syriac Psalm 155. The idea that it's part of us, but it's not a natural part. It's a wound. And we can contrast that with what we saw in Forku Baruchinavshi, where we're talking about the eyes and the heart and the neck. And these are basic parts of our being that need to be transformed. Let's move on to another prayer that actually kind of uh, explores God's responsibility for sin. And that's 4Q communal confession. 4Q communal confession from the 4Q, you know, that is from K4 Qumran. It's a penitential prayer. Again, it's supposed to be non-sectarian. And it's similar to other prayers from the post-exilic period that include kind of a communal confession. So it includes a request that God wipe out the sins of the community and create a new spirit and a faithful inclination within them. And then in a very urgent plea, the speakers ask God not to desert them. And here's where I'm going to read. Do not abandon your people and your inheritance. Do not allow each to walk in the stubbornness of his evil heart. According to your will, O oh my God, it has come to pass. And you have abandoned your people and your inheritance to walk each in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Now, this is interesting because this is the flip side of the assumption that these prayers make, okay? Again, I'm going to go back to what do we see in prayer? In prayer, a person comes with humility before the divine. He asks God to help. So prayer is usually going to tend towards helplessness against the evil inclination and the need for the divine help up to and including sometimes complete determinism. Here we don't see determinism so much, but this idea of if I'm helpless, I need to ask God to remove the evil inclination or to remove the evil heart, to remove the evil affliction. What happens if God doesn't listen? What happens if God abandons his people? Isn't it his fault then? So let me read this again. Do not abandon your people and your inheritance. Do not allow each to walk in the stubbornness of his evil heart. According to your will, oh my God, it has come to pass. And you have abandoned your people and your inheritance to walk each in the stubbornness of his evil heart. In other words, you left us to sin because we don't have your help and you're not listening. And it's a little bit now, I'll read it to you in the Hebrew, okay? The repetition here is don't. Don't leave your nation and your portion and don't allow the people to walk in each one in the stubbornness of his evil heart as your everything is according to your will and you'll leave your, your nation and your inheritance and don't allow people to walk in the stubbornness of their evil heart. So it's this idea of don't please, please God, don't, 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 don't leave us, don't leave us alone, don't allow us to sit. Okay, and there's this idea that on the one hand, I don't think that the people who are saying this prayer actually don't take responsibility for their sins. I think they do take responsibility for their sins, but when they're praying, when they're praying, they're putting it all on God. They're saying, God, do not leave us because when you abandon us, what choice do we have? Again, I do not think that they did this in their, they thought of it this way in their normal life. But when you're praying and when the whole idea is that you can't do it without God, then the flip side is if God leaves, then he enables this kind of constant sinning. Now, on the other hand, in lines 5, it says that God's presence alone is enough to purify and elevate those people who are receiving his presence. In other words, if God is with his people, it says, on whom will you make your face shine without their being purified and sanctified and exalted above everything? 
Now, this one assumes that this sanctification means that they won't sin again. In other words, they're purified and sanctified. So in other words, what we need is God's presence and God's absence equals sin. So this is an interesting idea of kind of the flip side, that if one needs God's help not to sin, then if God's not there and not helping, what's going to happen? Inevitable sin. Now, we have a similarly deep connection between the experience of prayer and the need for God's help in the Psalms of Solomon. Now, this work was likely composed during the Hasmonean period, and it has different Psalms that reflect different attitudes. It seems to be a composite work. So in Psalms of Solomon 9, the author declares humankind's complete free will and freedom of action. And he concludes that the one who practices righteousness stores up life for himself with the Lord. And the one who practices injustice is responsible for the destruction of his own soul. In other words, your choice between being good or being wicked, completely in your hands. But, and remember I said this is a composite work, in Psalms of Solomon 16, there's a prayer. And again, we, again, we see the experience of prayer influencing how one perceives the need for God's help. It says, hold me back, O God, from wicked sin and from every evil woman who causes the foolish to stumble. And then in words similar to some of the other prayers that we've read, the speaker says to God, direct the works of my hands in your place and guard my steps in your remembrance. And he asks God to distance anger and unreasoning wrath from him. And so here we see that on the one hand, you have Psalms of Solomon 9, where it's completely up to you. And then we have a prayer in Psalms of Solomon 16, where it's hold me back, oh God, from wicked sin, right? I need God to hold me back. So here we've seen a really wide range of ideas of sin. We have seen this idea that in prayer, in prayer, we are more likely to see this idea of helplessness before sin, and you need God's help. Or You've already received God's help in freeing you from sin. Now, you may ask, well, what about prayers that don't talk about an inclination to sin? We actually find that kind of prayer in narratives. Usually, we don't actually see prayers that are expressed as prayer where the person who's speaking is completely righteous because who can say in a prayer that they're completely righteous, right? No one can. That's the idea of prayer. Again, that's the idea of humbling oneself before the divine. But if we are reading narratives, then if we read, for example, Amram in Antiquity to the Jews, written by Josephus, right? So there's a narrative from the Second Temple period. And Amram asks God to pity the people who were not guilty of any transgression. Now, we don't, in general, see that in regular prayers written during the Second Temple period. A regular prayer is never going to say, and we weren't guilty of anything. Because who can say that? Right. Now, even in the prayer of Manasseh, which is a, uh, or Manasseh, right? It's meant to be Manasseh, but I'm reading it, the prayer of Manasseh, which was composed probably sometime between the second century BCE and the first century CE, there's no mention of any internal inclination to sin. Rather, Manasseh contrasts himself with the righteous, you know, patriarchs, with the Avot, right? Who did not need any such prayer, right? So the fact that he points to the righteousness of the avot of the patriarchs shows that there is no inevitability of sin. So where do we see this kind of non-inevitability? We usually see it in prayers in narratives, because there we can have people who are speaking who are righteous, right? In a narrative, we can have someone who is actually righteous, and we know they're righteous. Another group of prayers that does not assume a naturally human inclination to sin is apotropaic prayers, prayers that are meant to save one from evil spirits. And we've we've actually mentioned some of those earlier. Again, I, I mentioned episode seven where we talked about the watchers and there they're talking more about kind of demonic influence. Now, what's interesting is 
we take it for granted that when in a prayer, when we talk about this innate human inclination to sin. However, we don't see the paradigm in Mesopotamian prayer. We don't see it in Hellenistic prayer. What do we see in Mesopotamian petitionary prayer? Right. And this is, this is a prayer to the gods or to a specific god. In Mesopotamian prayer, the petitioner will usually claim ignorance of the sins he's committed. I don't know what sin did I do? I didn't do a sin. Right. He says, I don't know what sin I've committed that you're punishing me for. So early Hittite kings would take a different approach than that. In other words, they wouldn't say, I don't know the sins, but they would say, my father committed the sin. My forefathers committed the sin. I haven't done anything. Or they might say, I'm paying too much for the sin I did. Yeah, I sinned, but this is too much what you're doing to me. Remember that these petitionary prayers, Mesopotamian petitionary prayers, are usually in response to some bad thing happening. And the idea is you're asking the God to stop it, right? So either I don't know how I sinned, so just stop, please. Or my forefather sinned, or this is too much. Now, Hellenistic prayer is a little bit closer, and it shouldn't surprise us because it's actually closer in time. Also, Hellenistic prayer is closer has a stance that's closer to the second temple prayers, but it's usually it you they usually ascribe sin to foolishness, like in the in the hymn to Zeus by Cleanthes, which I mentioned earlier. So these hymns will usually attribute evil doing to foolishness or to misperception, and that's the explanation for why there's there's evil doing. An exception is actually a pre-Socratic parallel that we find in Xenophanes Symposium Elegy, fragment one. I am reading, joyful men should first hymn the God with pious words and pure thoughts and after libations and prayer for the strength to act righteously, for this is our immediate task. That's interesting. That's specifically something very early that we find in Xenophanes, who's one of the first Hellenistic thinkers to argue for a belief in the morality of the gods. I'm going to repeat that. Xenophanes is one of the first Hellenistic thinkers who says the gods must be moral. And he's also the one where we see this idea of praying for the strength to act righteously. So that's an interesting parallel, but it's an unusual one. And in general, this idea of an innate inclination to sin that one must pray to God for help against, okay, we don't see it. It's certainly not a Mesopotamian prayer and only in a very distant way in Hellenistic prayer. So what have we seen in this talk? We've seen this wide range of approaches to sin even within this relatively small group of prayers. We've seen that prayers generally emphasize the need for divine help, and we've discussed that over and over, to the extent that sometimes it can even seem like it's blaming God a little because saying that, God, grant your presence on us, and if you remove yourself from us, you're abandoning us to sin, right? We've seen that sin is sometimes compared to something really basic to the person, part of the heart, part of the eyes, part of the neck. It's also sometimes called more of a disease, an evil affliction or madness. We've also seen some hints of, of the idea that I, I like to point out whenever we, we meet up with it, that the Torah helps against sin. And what we find is, again, that the whole experience of prayer influences very much how sin is understood, that it's, on the one hand, they're describing usually an internal an internal experience, and at the same time, it's something that requires divine help. Now, let's go back to what we said in the beginning in terms of sins and state of sin. Here, we haven't seen so much the idea of a state of sin. We've seen this idea of kind of sin or an inclination to sin being connected to the human being, almost sometimes in a physical way. We have seen the idea of God 
making a change in the person so that before they had this sinful inclination and now they are free of it, right? Their heart has been changed. So we have seen that. We're still far from what we would think of as kind of a, a sinful state. You might be able to read it into Forkubrochinach. In other words, the idea that you have lecherous eyes and a heart of stone, all these different parts of you, you could think of it in terms of a sinful state, but realize that it's still pretty far from the way we're, you're thinking. We're thinking more in terms of the way Ezekiel, the way Yechezkel is talking about changing your heart of stone for a heart of flesh. Right? We wouldn't think of that really as a state of sin. We would think of it as a pessimistic view of humans, a pessimistic view of humans saying that they tend to be far from God. They tend to sin. And that's what we're seeing in these prayers, again, that have been pre-picked. I specifically brought prayers that are talking about an evil inclination. So I wouldn't say that all prayer has this very pessimistic view. We're specifically bringing prayers that do express an evil inclination and penitentiary prayers that are that express Penitence in general will do that. And as I mentioned, those prayers where we find lack of discussion of like an inclination to sin or, or something of that nature, we'll usually find it in narratives when it's talking about, it, let's say, a righteous person. But actual prayers, again, are going to acknowledge the person has sinned in the past and had this uh, this inclination, this sinful inclination, except, of course, when they're talking about demons. And then it's demons' fault, but we've discussed those already. So I hope you enjoyed this this talk. I'm looking forward to speaking with you next time. Please leave your comments at understandingsin.com. And I would also like to say that in just a few days, on Wednesday, August 9th, I will be actually presenting this podcast at the World Congress of Jewish Studies with the title, An Ancient Podcast, Tales from the Trenches. And we're going to be in the Humanities Building, Room 2722, Wednesday, August 9th, 3 to about 3.30 p.m. Any of you who happen to be in Jerusalem around Hebrew University, Please, uh, around Mount Scopus, please pop in. I'd love to see you. And I'm looking forward to, regardless, I'm looking forward to your comments on this talk. And I'm looking forward to speaking with you next time. Thank you. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.